Welcome to FinCast. I'm Juan Zarati. On episode 31, the Pandora Papers, explosive revelation of financial documents, hidden assets, and the challenge of transparency. A conversation with Washington Post reporter Greg Miller. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White nights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been prove it. Welcome back to FinCast. I'm excited to be with you again and with my good friend, Greg Miller from the Washington Post. Greg, welcome to FinCast. Thanks very much, Juan. Greg, just to give folks background, uh, Greg is one of the great reporters uh, in Washington and internationally. You know he's the investigative foreign correspondent for the Washington Post, uh, the winner of two Pulitzer Prizes with his teams in 2014 and 2018. And most importantly for this FinCast, the lead reporter on uh, the explosive revelation that has come from the Pandora Papers, along with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Greg, you have done some spectacular reporting and analysis. You published front pages of the Washington Post on October 4th. Can you tell the listeners what you have been doing for the past couple of years and what you're reporting has, uh, has shown you. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for that very generous intro, Juan. Is it possible to blush on a podcast with your <laughs> listeners now? I can see it, Greg. I can see it. <laughs> so this was um, when these stories published uh, about a week and a half ago now. It was the culmination of, of a year's worth of work and even a little bit longer for, for the team from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists because they were... They were looking through this stuff before the Post joined the project. And um, in many, many ways, this was unlike any other journalistic experience I've ever been part of in terms of in how much time it took, in terms of how painstaking the work was to, to try to go through these files, in terms of how frustrating it could be at times, following one dead end after another as you try to look for stories here. Um, but also in terms of how invigorating and inspiring it was to be part of a huge team with international reporters, not instead of competing with one another, actually helping one another, helping, you know, searching for cool stuff, sharing information, figuring out uh, and solving puzzles. I have to say I'm very gratified that that these stories are out and that they they got so much attention from readers at The Post and, and other news organizations I mean, when you're in the middle of something like this, you really never quite know how it's going to land. You never know. Or are people just going to shrug and say, well, gee, this just more stuff about people hiding their money overseas. I've seen that story before. But in this case, it seems to have really connected with people. And I know that the people at ICIJ and that my bosses at The Post are very happy about that. Yeah, Greg, explosive is, is a good way of describing it, because I think it was widespread global reaction to the revelations. And, and by the way, in terms of the work, if, if I have the numbers right, you, you looked at 11.9 million files, which is five times larger than the Panama Papers documents, you exposed 14 cases of world leaders that had assets hidden in some form or fashion through shell companies, almost 50 years worth of 
records, if I remember correctly, at least decades worth. So this was a massive project. And what's interesting about this work, Greg, from, from my perspective, is that it comes on the heels of all of the revelations that have come from the ICIJ related to financial transparency and accountability. You had yeah. the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, the FinCEN files, and now this, the Pandora Papers, which some some way seems to be the the big whale of, of, of documents that, that you've discovered. Can you, can you tell the listeners what you found in the documents and what may, may have surprised you? Because there's a lot of this that isn't surprising to those of us who've watched the space, the use of shell companies to hide or place uh, or, or to move money, the use of certain locations as facilitation hubs, British Virgin Islands, Panama, uh, you know, certain methodologies that are known, and, and frankly, the reality that the elite and the powerful can often overpower the system that's intended to bring transparency and accountability to, uh, to the movement of money. Did any of this surprise you? Yeah, those are, that's a great question, Juan. I, and it might help to try to, to maybe step back and help your listeners sort of understand what distinguished this collection of records from all of those other great investigations that you mentioned. So. You know, Panama Papers was like the first one out of the shoot. It's the one that I think most people remember. And um, Panama Papers had nearly as many documents, but they were all from a single law firm in Panama City. So the scope of it was, you know, was was much more narrow. In this case, the Pandora Papers, this most recent uh, project, was looking at documents from fourteen different financial services companies scattered all over the world. So we're, there, there's, there, there are companies in Singapore, BVI, Panama, um, in Europe. Uh, and so, you know, it just pulled in, uh, it, it just had so much more reach. You could see it reaching into so many more places, much broader geographically. And you talked about, you know, the, the power of these players to overwhelm the pushes for transparency. And to me, that was one of the things we learned from these documents. Because this comes on the heels of those other projects, you can actually read in these documents emails from advisors to world leaders, billionaires, you know, super rich individuals, basically telling them, this is our new strategy. This is how we're going to avoid become, becoming the victim of the next Panama Papers leak. And you know, at, at times you can see exchanges by email in which there are bitter arguments from managers for like King Abdullah of Jordan pushing the law firm in Panama City that they turn to to set up all their shell companies to do more, to do more to protect my guy from, from his name ever surfacing publicly. Obviously it failed because we wrote a big story about Abdullah. But, you know, if anybody thought that coming out of Panama and Paradise Papers and these other leaks, that perhaps there would be a retreat back to the mainstream financial markets, it's not. It's almost the opposite. There's just insatiable demand for secrecy in the financial world and more than, more than enough entities and individuals out there willing to sell and innovate and try to create new ways to beat the system. And, and that's a that's a great point. And I do want to come back to this issue of, of transparency and, and security, which I think is a, a fascinating one, uh, and get your opinion. It, it bears mentioning, and the listeners of FinCast are, you know, many of them are aware of all of the 
legislative and regulatory attempts to bring greater transparency to the system. So you for a long time have had requirements on politically exposed persons, you know, foreign leaders or government leaders, former government folks uh, to require additional reporting and enhanced due diligence, for example, to open a bank account. FATCA, which was the tax provision uh, that requires foreign banks to reveal where American citizens have uh, bank accounts for purposes of avoiding tax evasion. The new provisions of the Anti-Money Laundering Act late last year, which for the first time brings sort of federal order to corporate registration and mandates FinCEN to have a, a corporate registry uh, to have clarity on beneficial ownership. You've got the expansion of CFIUS with FIRMA, which is about investment security and transparency. You've had FinCEN with their geographic targeting orders looking at real estate investments via cash and other vehicles in New York and South Florida, Northern California, Southern California. So there's been all these attempts to get at transparency to, to understand where is money coming from? Who owns what? You know, do we know if foreign leaders or interests are getting access to key things? So that's been sort of a, a major push. But the revelation in, in this great reporting you've done, Greg, is that maybe all for naught, or at least it hasn't caught up yet. The system doesn't really work the way we intended to. Is that what you concluded? Yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, I think that the fundamental one of the fundamental issues here, it seems to me, is that you have governments who, you know, and jurisdictions trying to regulate something that spills across jurisdictions, right? And it's, and one of the stories that my colleagues did at the Post about South Dakota, Nevada, and other states that have adopted their own secrecy laws, financial secrecy laws, and sort of turned themselves into offshore tax havens inside the United States just sort of underscores the extent to which even for a country like the United States, it's hard to all be pulling in the same direction. Here you have a half dozen, a half dozen states seemingly undermining the, the federal government's objectives here in terms of transparency. But there are, for as discouraging as it can sound, I mean, there are some indications in the files that, uh, that reform efforts gain some traction. Like to me, one of the more fascinating things that I was looking at, you know, I did a whole story about King Abdullah of Jordan. To me, he was the most exposed foreign leader in this whole trove. We learned more about what he's doing with his money and how he's trying to hide it than I think about than about almost anybody else in the world. But there are exchanges in, in these documents between his financial handlers in which you have, a, you have a law firm that's setting up his shell companies, trying its best, seemingly, to comply with new requirements that kicked in after the Panama Paper stories five years ago. One of the provisions that kicked in was a requirement that at the, in the BBI that any new company that's set up, you have to give the authorities there the real name of the real owner of that company. It's not going to be public. It's going to sit in a secret you know, register, but they have it so that if the UK comes calling and, and law enforcement investigators or if the, if the FBI comes calling, they have a name that they can give them, that they can give the United States or the UK. And this drove Abdullah's people crazy. I mean, they moved money and shell companies out of BVI 
to Panama and other jurisdictions just to get away from that provision. So it kind of shows that you know when you when you introduce something like that, there it does cause a reaction. It does achieve some of its objectives. The trouble is the money just runs somewhere else. Yeah, money money is like water and and fluid, and it does find the dark corners uh, if people are trying to to hide it or layer it. Let me ask you this, because you also wrote a great article and a piece of analysis around the effectiveness of sanctions, or at least a question as to whether or not sanctions have proven effective in the Russian context. Um, can you explain to the listeners kind of your findings, in part because we often debate in, uh, on FinCast and, and in our circles whether or not sanctions are effective, what can make them more effective, what can undermine them, et cetera. And there's often a dismissiveness that sanctions are really just throwaway actions. And we've argued for a long time, when applied properly, they hurt. And they hurt the targets that, that are, are trying to get out from under them, frankly, uh, the, the moment that they're in place. So can you explain to the listeners what you found and, and, and what you analyzed? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, what I found sort of gives both sides of that argument ammunition. Because in, in the documents, you can see almost clearly, like when Russian oligarch, uh, like Deripaska comes under sanctions, the ripple effects, you can see the pain, you can see it landing, hitting his accounts, shell companies, and then rippling out to, into his little financial network. So one of the things I wrote about in the story that I did on this subject was about, you know, another Russia, uh, Russian financier who had was sitting on a note, a $200 million note from Deripaska that became almost utterly worthless after Deripaska was sanctioned. And that seems like that's pretty compelling evidence that sanctions are hitting their targets, right? That they are causing the pain they're intended to cause. It's when you step back and look at the bigger picture that it becomes more murky to me, because there are many examples like that in these documents and in other evidence but you know it's hard to make the case that the behavior by Moscow that these sanctions were designed to deter uh, has changed. I mean, we've we've no, I, I actually spoke with the Treasury Department to try to get an accurate count of how many sanctions are now in place on Russian individuals and entities, and it's up near eight hundred over just over the past eight or nine years. But you know, these were measures designed to punish Russia for. In invasion of Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea, for uh, assassinations of dissidents, for election interference. And none of that has really stopped. I mean, all of that seems to be continuing right up until the present moment. So it's it's hard. It's a it's a it's a hard, um, you know, it's it, what the bottom line, and I try to write it this way in the story, is that these sanctions are hitting their marks. It's just not clear that they are yet demonstrably an effective kind of foreign policy weapon. Yeah, Greg, and, and you're right. It it strikes right in the heart of that debate, right? Can sanctions affect the final foreign policy goals? Uh, are, are they targeted? Can they hit the targets that, that they're intended to hit, et cetera? So fascinating reporting on that. Greg, you're, you're well known for and, and have been awarded for a lot of the work you've done in the national security space, uh, which has been groundbreaking reporting over the course of, of many, many years. You know, can you speak to us? You, you've talked about King Abdullah and, and the revelations there. 
there's also very good reporting around Vladimir Putin and be very interested in your take on what you see in Vladimir Putin and maybe other world leaders use of the financial system to hide their money and also to influence. And this is something we've seen with Vladimir Putin, not just in the Pandora Papers, but in prior revelations as well. Yeah, yeah. Putin is such an interesting and fascinating case study here because he doesn't show up in the documents. You, you, you know, we, believe me, we looked. <laughs> you don't find you don't find shell companies registered to Vladimir Putin in in the Pandora documents or in the Panama documents. But that doesn't mean he's not all over. I mean, it, that's what's really interesting. It's the way he goes to he takes additional measures to distance himself from the money that he is connected to. So the story you're talking about is is centers on a woman who is um, uh, a Russian woman from St. Petersburg who reportedly had an affair with Vladimir Putin. Uh, Russian media has identified her as somebody who had a relationship with him in the early 2000s. They even allegedly had a child. Of course, it's hard to hard for, for a U.S. news organization to get confirmation of that from the Kremlin. But no you DNA know, test, Greg. Uh, it sure looks like it. It sure <laughs> looks like that's the case. I mean, this is a, a a daughter who was born in 2003. Her middle name the, means child of Vladimir. So, I mean, and, and there is no other, there's no father listed on, a, on any of the public records for this person. So it looks like a pretty compelling case. And then within months of this, of this woman from St. Petersburg giving birth to this girl, this shell company pops up called Brockville Development. And then when you follow this little trail, and this is just sort of a classic example of how reporting on a project like this works, you find her name in the documents, you find this shell company in the documents, and then you have to go outside the documents to figure out what it means. So then we start looking through public records, real estate records all over the place, and Brockville pops up in Monaco uh, as the owner of a very, very nice apartment in a very lavish complex overlooking the Mediterranean. So within like months of this of this birth of this child, this woman who had no money in her background, completely modest um, family history, ends up with a multi-million dollar condo overlooking the Monaco uh, shoreline. So, you know, it, it's to me, it's like that in itself was just so fascinating to try to unlock. Uh, and it's a great narrative all on its own, but it also tells us something bigger. It also tells us a lot about how the, the system under Putin works, in which you see this over and over and over again, and, and leak after leak after leak have kind of validated this, that he uses other people and then shell companies to park money all over the place, all over the world. And, and we're never going to have a fully comprehensive view of, of his wealth and where it's hidden, but we now have quite a few um, case studies that show us how it works and what he's done. Yeah, Greg, it's very well put. Great reporting. And, and I agree with you. I think Vladimir Putin, Inc. is all about proxies and not about, you know, named beneficial ownership with his, his name emblazoned on it. So yeah, there's a uh, word, there's a term that I, we came across that, that I hadn't heard. And I know others probably have. It's the, the wallets is the term of art that experts seem to use. Wallets are people who Putin has known for a long time. There are, there's like a network of very trusted 
friends and associates, many of them childhood friends, who don't have, you can look at them and see no reason that they, no, no external evidence that they've, that they've done anything to make themselves rich. Yet once you get into, into troves of documents like this, you find that they're sitting on hundreds and hundreds of million dollars in assets. And it looks like that doesn't necessarily belong to them, it belongs to him. Fascinating, Greg. Great, great reporting on that. Greg, I want, I want to ask your opinion about the role of these facilitators and these companies that, that seem to be in the middle of the shell company formation and the movement of assets. You, you talked a bit about the advisors and, and with the Panama Papers, of course, you had the law firm Monsac Foseca that was right in the middle of, of this years of forming shell companies and, and uh, placing money for people and, and frankly, hiding money for people. What's, what's your sense of the role of these money centers and these facilitators in the schemes that you've uncovered? I mean, they're, they're obviously central to this. They, this uh, the offshore system doesn't function without them. You get a, um, the impression from reading, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of these documents that some try to play by the rules more than others. Some couldn't care less about the rules and are all about trying to defeat the rules. You know, in this, in these, in this trove, there were some very big companies. One of them is called Trident Trust. And one of the interesting things we saw in these documents was that the Trident Trust actually mounted a special internal program after the Panama Papers leak, after Mossack Fonseca started to collapse to grab all that business. They actually, I think they had they had an internal code name that was like Mossack something. It was all about identifying clients of that law firm and snatching them up before somebody else did, grabbing that money, helping that money get back underground. You know, and there's an another Panama City firm that we focused that, that we focused a lot of reporting on because they handled accounts for King Abdullah uh, and for a number of Russian oligarchs and other people that we were keenly interested in called Alcogal. It's an amalgam of a long series of names, like many law firms are, super connected, founded by a former. Uh, Panamanian ambassador to the United States, whose father was also a Panamanian ambassador to the United States, uh, super plugged in firm, set up thousands and thousands of shell companies for connected people all over Latin America, all over the Middle East, Russia, you name it. Again, fascinating reporting. I, I think, Greg, for the experts in, in this field, especially those that have worked for regulators or for, you know, with the Financial Action Task Force, uh, we know that there are jurisdictions that are that have a history of being home to these kinds of facilitators and facilitation. You have actors precisely the type that you've described that try to capture this business despite the risk and despite the challenges. And it's it's fascinating to see it in black and white, thanks to your reporting. Greg, if I could ask you just, you know, we're we're now, you know, a few few weeks away from the original reporting. What reactions uh, have you gotten to the reporting? What, what have you seen around the world? There's, there's a ripple effect always to these revelations, and they seem to be, uh, the ripple effects seem to be bigger and bigger each time. What have you seen in the reactions, and, and have you been pleased with what you've seen? So, I mean, uh, the reaction cuts across a number of different categories. So, first and foremost, for ICIJ and The Post, I mean, these stories got a ton of readers, just a ton of readers latched onto this. 
which is super interesting to me. People are interested in this subject. People seem to care about this. It's it's easy to, it, it might have been easy to assume otherwise that that people would sort of shrug about about these cases, but no. I mean, readers turned up in droves for these stories. The reaction, it's you know, you're right. We're a couple of weeks out from the very first stories. Um, and in some ways, it's been swift and moved quickly. In others, it's more muted. We've seen investigations launched in at least a dozen countries, including India, including in um, the Czech Republic, and in some states in Africa and elsewhere, and in, and in some states in Latin America. We've seen political consequences. The prime minister of the Czech Republic just lost an election last week. And I'm sure there are many factors that, that help to account for that. But his, ex, his exposure in these documents, I mean, this is a, a prime minister who's cast himself as, a, as an anti-elitist and a scold of the European wealthy and elite who, had, turns out, had secretly used shell companies to buy a French chateau for $22 million. I mean, it it hurt his credibility, and, and it's hard not to think that that was a factor in that election. In other cases, though, it's it's sort of it's hard to know um, whether it will have any impact or how long it will take to to know. In Jordan, for example, you know, as I said, I think that the 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 stuff we learned about King Abdullah is in some ways the most damning stuff we found in these documents. Here is a country among the poorest in the Middle East, dependence on depends. Uh, on billions of dollars a year in aid, and its leader is secretly funneling tens of millions of dollars into the United States to buy beachfront compounds in Malibu. I mean, what's more outrageous than that? And yet the, the reaction in Jordan is completely muted, in part because the media environment there is so repressed. I mean, no Jordanian news organizations have, have covered this. One website dared to try to write a story about that and was immediately contacted by the security services and told to take the story down. So there's sort of been a blackout there. And it, and also, you know, many Jordanians speak Arabic, obviously. It's going to take a while for uh, these stories to, to penetrate there. And Russia is just another category, right? I mean, to to go into stories like this thinking that you're going to you're going to deliver some sort of knockout punch to the Russian kleptocracy is ridiculous. Um, it's just built to withstand now these kinds of disclosures. And, you know, Putin and his spokesmen kind of have reacted with, with shrugs. They've tried to have it both ways, basically. Wow, these Pandora Papers stories sure make the United States look bad, but oh, the rest of it, who really cares? You know? <laughs> Yeah, ho-hum, ho-hum, nothing to see here. Yeah, <laughs> fascinating, Greg. And I do think, just to reflect a little bit on, on a lot of these reports, and, and some of it, I have to be honest, when Panama Papers came out, it was explosive. But for those of us who've been in this in this field, it was, you know, this is, we, we know this, right? We, we know that the, these things happen, and, and it, but it's something different to see it in black and white. But the question of, like, what are the effects I was a little skeptical at first, you know, with Panama Papers. I thought, you know, we've been preaching, and my my partner Chip Ponzi has been sort of the the chief evangelist on the need for beneficial ownership laws and uh, corporate formation reform for the you know over a decade, and he's been banging his head against the wall, et cetera. So I I was a bit cynical that these things would actually have much impact. But what 
what I'm surprised to see is really it has given weight and momentum to new laws, regulation, and attention. I do think it's animated investigations. And even in the context of Russia, Greg, I think your reporting in combination with others really does begin to flesh out a tableau that, again, a lot of us already knew, which is Putin has a, an extensive network uh, and a network that is not invulnerable, right? These are individuals that can be investigated, companies that can be probed, sanctions perhaps that can be used for, for various reasons. So it has unleashed a whole range of, of reactions that are fascinating. And I, and I think, you know, credit to you and to the reporters who've done, done this spade work. I think there's a there is a line of effective criticism there too of Putin that that comes out of these stories. So one of his obviously most vocal critics and most powerful political opponents is Alexei Navalny. That's why he was poisoned last year. That's why he's in prison now. And Navalny has talked about the this case that there's this you know that that Putin had this secret child with this woman and part of this hidden relationship. And his, what he said about it was fascinating to me. It was, I don't really care how many secret families Vladimir Putin has. What I care about is how much corruption is, is in this state that we live in goes toward enriching uh, the people who are close to him. He can have all the families and, and affairs that he wants, but the money that's enriching those people is not his money. It's coming from us. Yeah. Fascinating. And Greg, I think that theme is why, at least from my perspective, there's a lot of reader interest in these stories. There's, there's some of the sort of titillating details and things that come with, with these stories, which you're expert at highlighting, of course, and to make it attractive to readers. But it's, it's this question of corruption, accountability, transparency, and inequity, especially the time of great inequity and crisis uh, in the pandemic. It's, it's, it's fascinating to see sort of the depths of, of wealth and the depths to which, you know, leaders like Putin and, and others will, will go to hide their money and to, to place their money. Let me ask you, you this question, Greg, it's, it, it's a different angle to this story, but I think it's an important one. And it's this question of whether or not full and aggressive transparency is actually a good thing in all cases. And, and I say that with, with great humility because for a long time, uh, you know, I've been a champion of full and aggressive transparency as a, as a core part of a financial system that works and is accountable and traceable, et cetera. But are there cases in, in, your, in your mind, based on the reporting, are there instances where it may make sense for people to be able to shield a bit, not completely, but shield a bit of their identity or their holdings especially in autocratic states or in environments where they may be threatened or may have their wealth and families threatened as a result of the societies they live in or the governments that are looking after you know, th those, those people or those assets. What, how, do you, how do you balance this idea of privacy and security on one side and the need for transparency on the other? That's a really, that's a great question and such a hard question. But I think you're right to cast it as a as a balance, and I'm sure that there are cases in which um, it does make sense and it is defensible um, and it is, if not desirable, to have for it to be possible for somebody who is in a situation 
where they're worried that their their hard-earned money is going to be seized by the state or plucked by adversaries to be able to put that in a secure spot. I mean, and, and that's really, for better or worse, I mean, that's that's what's really behind a lot of the Russian behavior. There's a reason that when you look in a trove like Pandora Papers, that there are more Russians than any other nationality. I mean, it is their distrust of the state that they are trying to escape. They're trying to put their money in safe places, and that is not Russia. They're not parking that money in Russia, despite all of Vladimir Putin's appeals to them to keep their money in the state. Um, but I think that, you know, it's hard for me. I, I'm, I am not half as smart as you are on this stuff. I haven't ever looked at it from a policy perspective with the breadth and depth that you have. It, it strikes me, having spent a year looking at this issue, though, that, I mean, that the, that the downside of secrecy seems to offset whatever upside exists, right? The, it, it just undermines accountability for not just the people of places like Jordan, but for, for, for people here in the United States or in other countries. If our leaders can, can pocket money from engaging in graft and corruption and escape accountability by, by hiding that money in places where we can't find it or ever see it, that undermines democracy, that undermines good governance, that hurts everybody in very fundamental ways. When you can hide money for, and, and avoid paying your fair share of taxes, it just raises the tax burden for all the rest of us who, who don't have that luxury of setting up offshore accounts in the BVI or something like that. It aids and, and benefits drug trafficking enterprises, ransomware attacks. I mean, there's so much potential harm that comes from financial secrecy that I, I would think that it's hard to come up with comp enough compelling cases of, of, of advantages to that system that it would, that it would weigh things in, the, in that favor or in that direction. It's a great point, Greg. And, and by the way, it's not your job to actually have to sort of weigh some of those things. Your, your job is to reveal the facts and to, and to report and to analyze the way you do so expertly. But, you, but you're right, it is a balance and it's an interesting question given the power of autocratic states and, and, and the balance of, of security. And I think it's something we haven't fully grappled with as a, sort of a policy community. Um, but you're right. I mean, before we even get to that sort of, you know, existential debate, we actually need some transparency and the system is full, not fully transparent yet and not fully effective. And I think our listeners understand that. Um, Greg, you're, you're a great author. I, I failed to mention your, your book, which came out with great acclaim, uh, the, the Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. Of course, that was a part of a lot of your reporting for the Washington Post. And part of the reason you were awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 2018. And congratulations again for that. Um, what, what's next for you, Greg? What, what's, uh, what's, what are you working on? What interests you? Are you going to be doing more work with the ICIJ? I think uh, listeners would be interested to, to know more about you and your work. I mean, I, would, I, I really enjoyed working with ICIJ. I learned so much as part of this project. Their people are great people. Fergus Shield, who was the editor that I interacted with most so frequently on this project, their reporters are first rate, they're researchers. It was a pleasure to work with them. I would welcome the chance to work with ICIJ in any, in any, uh, any time. 
And I think there are some more stories to come out of the Pandora trove. Uh, I'm working on something now that sort of relies to, to, on the documents a bit, but it also goes off in a slightly different direction. It's it's on um, it's based in the Middle East. I know that some of my colleagues from the Post are still combing through some of the records and have other stories in the works. And I think you know when you have 11.9 million documents, there's there's no way we've hit bottom yet. We've, there's no way we've found everything that there is to find in this trove. So I would expect to see that. I, I have some other things that I'm so, turning to. I mean, I've started this new job. Uh, I just moved to London just a couple months ago to, to start this new position as an investigative correspondent on the foreign staff for the paper. And, you know, but even, even though I'm uh, across the pond now, I think I'll still be looking at issues that I've been looking at for a while. I care about national security stuff from a US perspective. I'll be looking at, I'm looking at some stories that have to do with Russia, that have to do with Middle East, uh, that have to do with these broader themes of nationalism versus globalism. And, you know, that's, that's something that cuts across almost everything, including the Pandora Papers project. Greg, you're, you're such a great and thoughtful reporter. You know, I'm, I'm excited that you're you sort of waded right into the the middle of this world of kind of illicit finance and transparency, because a lot of us, as you know, have argued for a long time that these issues intersect fundamentally with the issues of international and national security, and and I'm I'm really happy that you're you're continuing to explore these issues, and there's a long tail to the trove of these documents. And that you're right in the middle of, of, of driving the re this reporting and obviously the reporting for the Post. Greg, I want to thank you for taking time uh, with me and the listeners of FinCast. Uh, really an honor for me to have this conversation with you and, and really want to congratulate you with not just this most recent reporting, but your body of work and, and everything you've done in your career. Really impressive. And, and thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Well, that means a lot to me. And, and I have to say, you know, I... For me to be able to do the work that I do, it, it depends on my ability to ask questions and get help and insights from people like yourself. And you've been there for me for many, many years, sharing your expertise, sharing your thoughts about security issues, finance and everything. So I'm, I'm, this has been a great conversation, and uh, but an extension of a conversation that you and I have been having for many, many years, and I hope it'll continue. Thanks very much. Thank you, Greg. It's very kind of you. And, and I'm happy that it's uh, now on the open. We can share this conversation with our listeners. So that's it for this episode of FinCast. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. I learned a lot, as always, from Greg Miller. We'll see you next time on FinCast. Until next time, I'm Juan Zarate. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.